If you were here last week, you got to hear the great announcement we told you about how we were able to provide breakfast and some gift cards for teachers at four of our local schools, two in Noblesville and two in Carmel, through our greater initiative that many of you have been a part of for the last 18 months. And I'm excited to tell you that we've got a second gift we want to announce today. This one is to ICF Church in Albania, who's one of our ministry partners. Now, uh, some of you maybe uh, went to Albania in 2015 on this trip up here. There's our very own Jim Vaselli uh, preaching. Uh, this is uh, Altin and Ada uh, Kita. They're, they're the lead pastors of ICF Church. But um, if you went on that trip, uh, then you probably got to see this, but there are some great ways that they are serving the community in Albania. ICF Church is about 10 years old, so they've been around for 10 years. They've baptized over 200 people in that 10 years, mainly youth. A lot of their congregation is college age and younger. They serve over 150 families annually uh, through the Jonathan Center, which is their ministry to families with disabilities and special needs. And this is crazy. In the past 10 years, ICF has helped start over 100 churches in and around Albania. And even four, yeah, isn't that great? Even four in the last 18 months during this difficult season of COVID. And what we said at the very beginning of Greater was through our partnership with ICF Church, we knew that they need a new facility. They're bursting at the seams. And some of you remember when we started Greater, we said that, uh, you know, we wanted to make disciples, reach our cities and change the world. And part of that change the world piece uh, was to help ICF Church in Albania find a new home. We figured if we're going to get a new home at Genesis, then they're going to get a new home too. And guess what? Because of your giving, we're re ready to present today. We're going to announce a gift to ICF Church of $50,000 to help them with their new church. Isn't that awesome? Now, they haven't found a home yet. They haven't found a home yet. Neither have we. <laughs> but we're looking diligently, and so are they. And I wanted to give, show you this uh, from ICF lead pastor, Altine, uh, a thank you from him. Hello, Genesis Church. Now, if you see that video and you think, that doesn't look like Albania, you're right. <laughs> Altine was actually in Florida this past week, and uh, he sent us that video from Florida. But Florida looks remarkably like Indiana, I think. So uh, anyway, I want you to hear, I just want you to hear this one phrase that he wrote in his email about how the gospel is spreading through Albania. He said this, we believe that God will use us to change the name of Albania in our generation. We will not be called a Muslim nation or a mafia nation or a corrupted nation or any other name. Albania will be called by the name of the Lord. Isn't that awesome? So thanks for your generosity, Genesis. Uh, let's just take a moment right here and let's pray for ICF and for Altina Nada. Uh, Lord, we are so thankful for our partnership and to see what you're doing in Albania is amazing. To see people in a mostly atheist country come to Christ and uh, college students come to know the Lord through that ministry. We're so glad to be a part of it. I, I pray, pray that you would bless uh, Altine and Ada and their ministry. Lord, would you bless ICF as they're looking for a new home? Uh, we know that they're not looking for a big fancy building. They're looking for a place that they can continue to minister to these young people and the families with uh, disabilities and with special needs. And so, Lord, I just pray that you would help them find the exact place you have them. As, as we've prayed as a church for the last year and a half, would, would, you pray, would you show them the land where they will go and let them know that they are loved and that they're cared for here in the States through this gift. And thank you so much uh, for the resources you've provided to give this gift. We pray these things in Jesus' name. 
Amen. All right. Hey, we're going to start in 1 John today. So if you've got your Bible, you might open it to 1 John. If you don't have a Bible, there are these blue ones here like this in the back of the room. You're welcome to go grab one of those. And if you don't own a Bible, please take that home with you. Uh, We want you to be able to read along with us. It's page 832 and those Bibles in the back of the room. 1 John is the first of three letters written by John. Real easy naming convention there. Uh, John to Christians living in the first century world. Now, I do want to clarify, this is not John the Baptist. This is John that we know as the Apostle John. Uh, You may know from your reading that John the Baptist died while Jesus was still alive, that he uh, died at the hands of Herod. Uh, The Apostle John, though, was one of Jesus' closest friends and one of his first disciples. Uh, Following Jesus' ascension into heaven, John eventually made his way to Asia Minor, where he lived well into his 80s. In fact, uh, he is, as far as we know, the only one of Jesus' original apostles who who was not martyred for his faith. John lived uh, late into life and lived uh, a natural life. He, He served as a missionary later in his life and an encourager to some of these other churches in the area. And boy, did these churches need encouragement. I mean, life was hard for Christians living in the Roman Empire. They were tired, they were afraid, they were worn out from the circumstances of life. They were oppressed by the Roman leaders who didn't like them because of their Jewish backgrounds. But at the same time, the Jewish people didn't like them because they considered the the people in the first church heretics. And even within their churches, there were disagreements over both really important beliefs and then some other matters that didn't make much of a difference. It caused a lot of division and broken relationships within the churches and people that they used to call friends went their separate ways and did ministry somewhere else. There was economic chaos in the world and people were confused by living in this civilization that had no moral compass. The the nuclear family was falling apart. Divorces were increasing. Orphans roamed the streets. Sexuality had no boundaries. The first century was a messed up, confusing, worn out, weary world. And I know we've talked about this I know we've talked about this as we've read through the New Testament, but it really relates to the world that we're living in now. It sounds a lot like the challenges that we face living in 21st century America. So just scroll through your newsfeed. You'll see it daily. You're bombarded with uh, doom and gloom. You know, this pandemic that we thought would come and go looks more and more like our new reality. I remember sitting in this room in April of 2020, right as the pandemic started, and talking to my friend who's an administrator at a local hospital, kind of high up in the hospital, and he said, you know what? My sources are telling me this thing could last until July. Now, this is in April of 2020, okay? And I'm like, July? Are you kidding me? There is no way I can go that long. And here we are 18 months later, and it's still going on, right? Uh, Economic woes are here. Prices are rising. Another inflation report this week showed inflation's up almost 7% over a year ago. You see that at the pump. You see it when you go to the grocery store. If you can find what you're looking for at the grocery store, because at the same time prices are going up, shortages are everywhere. Um, Maybe you watch the news and you see another school shooting and it causes you to wonder, like, can I even send my kids out in public anymore? If you turn on the TV or you go to a movie, you notice the Christian moral values and Christian moral values and the mores that so many of us cling to make us look like ancient relics from like a 1950s ad campaign or something. And oh yeah, don't look now, but 2022 is an election year. (laughs) Our world looks eerily similar to what Christians were facing in the first century. It's a worn out, confusing, weary world. And for some of you, weary isn't just everything out there. It's a lot of what's going on in here. It's very personal for you. You're weary from fighting in your marriage. You're weary from never having enough money to make it to the end of the month. You're weary from the chronic pain or the cancer. 
You're weary from the loss of someone you love. You're weary from the, the loneliness and the dread of having to spend another holidays by yourself and then all the questions that that's going to raise with your parents or with your relatives about why you haven't found anybody yet. Why are you still single? You're weary from the busyness. You're weary from wondering, where are you going to put that stupid elf today? <laughs> you know, you're... We live in a weary world. We're in a tired, worn-out, weary world, and I don't know why. Maybe it's just the winter, although I'm one of the crazy ones who likes winter better than summer, but why is it that the Christmas season tends to amplify the weariness that we feel, especially for Christians, right? Well, maybe you're dreading the Christmas get-together this year because you just know that you're going to walk into a discussion that's surely going to turn to politics at some point, or you know your dad is going to share what he believes about vaccines, or your aunt is going to talk about uh, her deep research that she's been doing that you really got to dig pretty deep to find this stuff or your uncle's going to talk about his kids and all the great things that they've been doing and you're going to start to compare and contrast with what you've been doing and you just kind of want to slide down into the couch cushions and disappear for a little while. Or uh, maybe you end up in a discussion where like you know your faith prevents you from throwing hands, okay? But like if you could just get like a 10-second Jesus timeout, right? Like you know that God is always watching you, but if you could do one of those, hey, Jesus, look over there for a minute, that you would punch your brother-in-law right in the throat because of the things he's been saying. Now, I'm talking about you, okay? I'm not talking about me. Don't you dare make this about my family, okay? This is about you and what you're gonna encounter at Christmas. Hey, if we're not careful, there's a chance that we can forget what's most important about the Christmas season that the challenges and the circumstances of life, even the busyness of life has the potential for, to, for, to rob us of the truth that matters most, which is this, that 2,000 years ago, God sent his one and only son, Jesus, to come to earth as a human to save us, to live a sinless life and to die a redeeming death to save us, to give us the hope to keep on living and believing and shining for him. And John, the apostle John, knew these truths. He was one of the rare people who was there with Jesus from the very beginning of his ministry. He was there for all the high moments. John got to see people being healed and fed, and he saw water turned into wine. He was there for the miracles. John laid hands on men whose legs had never worked and watched them get up and walk away. Like he was there for all those moments, but John had also been through the bad times too. He, he was there when Jesus and his followers had to keep moving to stay away from the Jewish leaders who wanted to kill him. He was there when Jesus' teaching got people so irritated they wanted to throw him off the edge of a cliff. And he was there as he watched his friend hang bloodied on a Roman cross and die. But John was also there when Jesus was resurrected, when he came back. He, he saw Jesus alive after he saw him dead. And uh, because of that, he knows that there is hope for all of us. He saw the hope that Jesus can bring to this weary world. And I think that's why he's writing to these Christians living in this ancient world and why his words are true for us as well. Now, the first few passages of 1 John are actually some of the most profound Christmas passages in the Bible. Now, as we look at them this morning, you might think, Christmas? What are we talking about Christmas? There's no shepherds in there. There's, they didn't talk about Bethlehem. There's no manger. There's no wise men. Well, you're right. Um, Christmas was back in Luke, okay? But by the time these words were written, Jesus had lived and died, been resurrected, descended into heaven. There's nothing in here about what we think of as the traditional Christmas story. But John's words here, while they don't refer to those traditional elements, they talk about what Christmas really means. 
And that's really important because all the hope that you and I have ever wanted or are ever going to need is found in the promises of Christmas. So let's look at this passage, open up this passage and look at it. First John 1, 1. We're gonna go verse by verse for the first few verses and just see what John has to say about Jesus. First John 1, 1. That which was from the beginning, uh, that's the personal expression of God that he's talking about. That which was from the beginning, the son of God, the one and only son of God, the invisible God, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. Now, it's important to understand as we read through this passage that John is writing from Ephesus, which is in modern-day Turkey, around 90 A.D., probably 50 to 60 years after the death of Jesus. Now, Jerusalem was destroyed and Christians scattered in about 70 A.D. So Christians aren't just in one place now. They're kind of all over the, the mod, that, that era of world, that, that part of the world. So his words are going out to Christian refugees that are living as strangers and foreigners. And John wasn't underestimating their pain. He, he knew the struggles and the suffering that the people had endured. He knew the weariness of the world. But he writes these words to encourage these Christians, make sure they keep their eyes on what is most important, that which was from the beginning. And with these words, he reminds them, hey, don't forget about Jesus. We have heard him. We have seen him, we have touched him. And as you read these words, can't you just picture John at the witness stand and he's in a courtroom and he's giving his testimony as if you hear him shout, he is for real. Remember, Jesus is for real. John said, this is real. The birth of Jesus is real. It really happened that God really came to earth in the form of a person and that person was Jesus. That Christmas is not some nostalgic made up story. It really happened. Now, I don't know if you realize this or not, but there is virtually zero debate in the academic community that Jesus actually lived, that he was a real person, that he was a historical figure who lived in the first century. Even if you don't believe the Bible, you should know that many extra-biblical historians, people like Josephus and Tacitus and Pliny the Elder, who wrote during that era, reference Jesus in their writings, and there's little dispute with the facts set forth in the Gospels. Now, when you read this, you might think back to Acts chapter 4 when John was caught along with his friend Peter teaching uh, in the temple courts, and uh, they were brought before the Sanhedrin, uh, the ruler, ruling council of the Jews, and the Sanhedrin asked them not to go talking about this Jesus again. And Peter and John use this phrase. They say, we can't stop talking about what we have seen and what we have heard. And so John is telling these believers, he said, we don't believe this because we thought Christianity was a better way to live or that it made the most sense to us, that we practiced it because we saw Jesus rise from the dead. He says, Jesus is real. Do you believe that this morning? Will you believe it? To some of you are like, I want to believe that. I do. I want to believe that. I don't know. Do the facts really support it? Well, I love this illustration. I'm going to give uh, credit where credit is due. Pastor Andy Stanley used this illustration in a message, and it has to do with baseball. Any baseball fans in the audience? Anybody? Sorry for you right now. Maybe it looks like there may not be a season. Who knows? Um, Yale physicist Robert Adair studied the science behind hitting a fastball. Now, if you're not a baseball fan, you're going to yawn over the next few seconds. But if you are a baseball fan, you're used to yawning by watching the game. So... um, (laughs) Yale physicist Robert Adair studied the science behind hitting a major league fastball. He published it in his book called The Physics of Baseball in 2002. Now, here's some things he found. A 90-mile-per-hour fastball has to travel 60 feet 6 inches from the pitcher 
to the batter. It does that in about 400 milliseconds. Okay, that's 0.4 seconds, 0.4 seconds, a little less than half a second. Now, he figured out it takes the batter 200 milliseconds just to find the ball in the air, to get that image in his brain and to decide whether or not to swing. So half the time, it gets halfway to the plate before the batter can even decide if I see the ball and I'm ready to swing, 200 milliseconds, okay? Well, if the batter decides to swing, his brain spends another 100 milliseconds deciding whether I'm going to swing the bat high or low or in the strike zone. So that's 300 milliseconds down before you ever get the bat off your shoulder. Now, the swing itself takes 150 milliseconds. During the first 50, the batter can stop the swing. After the first 50, you're already part of the way through the swing. It's moving at 70% of its final speed. You can't change your mind anymore. Adair says a seven millisecond variation will cause the batter either to hit a foul ball or to miss the ball altogether. So add that all up. I know you probably not didn't come to church to do math on Sunday. 200 milliseconds to find the ball. 100 milliseconds to decide whether or not to swing, 150 to swing the bat, that's 450 milliseconds. Does anybody remember how long it takes the ball to get to the plate? 400 milliseconds. So according to the laws of physics, it is impossible to hit a 90-mile-per-hour fastball. Now, how many of you believe that? Why? Well, because you've seen it, right? If you've ever watched a baseball game, can you imagine how boring baseball would be if nobody ever hit the ball? I mean, it's bad enough as it is, right? But you have seen somebody hit. In fact, you've probably seen somebody hit a 100-mile-per-hour fastball. And if 90 miles per hour is hard, 100 miles per hour must be harder, right? So you would say, I don't agree with that conclusion because of what I've seen and what I have heard, right? I can't explain the facts, but I can't deny what I've seen. That's what John is saying. John said, this is not a theory that we've accepted because we can explain it all. We believe this because we saw Jesus rise from the dead. We saw him, we touched him, we felt the wounds in his body after the resurrection. I wonder, what will it take for you? If you're not a believer this morning, what will it take for you? Now, Jesus is real. This really happened. You're you're surrounded by people whose lives have been changed forever. And believing that Jesus is real won't make everything perfect, right? It won't make all your problems go away. It won't give you the the most wonderful life all the time, but it's a truth that can help us no matter what we go through. Jesus is real. His birth, Christmas, changes everything. John's gonna go on. 1 John 1, 2. He says, the life appeared. We have seen it and we testify to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with God the Father and has appeared to us. Now this word, this life, this word right here that John uses is the Greek word zoe. And I was looking on Blue Letter Bible this week, and it had a a better, more complete translation of Zoe. Here's what it says. Zoe is life real and genuine, a life active and vigorous, devoted to God, blessed in the portion even in this world of those who put their trust in Christ, but after the resurrection to be consummated by new accessions, among them a more perfect body. How many of you want a more perfect body this morning? Amen. And to last forever. That's the kind of life that John says appeared in the way of Jesus. Now, John doesn't say that Jesus has life or that he gives life. John writes he is life. He is eternal life. John's aim here is to announce that Jesus is the one from whom eternal life flows. Now, what does that mean? I love how Pastor Tim Keller explains it. He says this, in every other religion, the founder is a prophet or a sage. And the founder says, here's the way for you to find eternal life. Do this, do this, do this, and you will be saved. But Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. 
Christianity does not say that Jesus is a great prophet pointing the way to God and how we can save ourselves. Jesus Christ, according to Christmas, is God come to save us, to do for us what we can't do for ourselves. To know him is eternal life. And so in this second verse, what John is declaring to his readers is this, Jesus is real and Jesus is life. Jesus is life. A little more on that for Jesus' life. We go looking for meaning and satisfaction in so many things, friends. Like we go looking for purpose in our work, in money, in sports, in our achievements, in our kids, in our busyness. And, and when our world gets turned upside down and something that we love gets taken away, it hurts, right? Because we put a lot of our value in that. We put maybe our identity in that. Now, there's nothing wrong with enjoying the good things that God has provided for you. There's nothing wrong with enjoying what you enjoy. In fact, God finds joy in most everything that you and I enjoy. But it's a little bit like this. Um, many of you know I pride myself on being a runner. And back in the day, like maybe 10 or 15 years ago, part of that meant I was getting faster. I was getting faster. I was getting fitter. Uh, every run seemed like it would be faster. My times were going down. My weight was coming down. But I'm 51 now. And uh, while my running career isn't over, I've resigned myself to the fact that I'm probably never going to be faster than I was. Uh, like as the great philosopher Toby Keith said, I ain't as good as I once was. You know that? Uh, now, if I found all my value in running, that would hurt, right? Can you imagine what it would do to me? What if I viewed my primary identity as I'm a runner? Like, how messed up would that realization make me? See, when we make these other things like the ultimate thing, the most important thing, and they don't satisfy, we can almost feel like our world is falling apart or that life isn't worth living. But when Jesus is your life, that Zoe life that John talks about, your satisfaction is in him. He's the one that makes our life worth living. And he's the one that keeps our life from falling apart. He offers what we need. Here's why this is good news. I'm tired of trying to measure up. Aren't you tired? Aren't you tired of trying to prove yourself? Aren't you weary and exhausted from trying to be good enough? Well, here's the good news. You're off the hook. Someone else came to do for you what you are not able to do for yourself. Christmas means that you are saved by grace. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to work for it. You don't have to earn your place. Life is yours just by accepting the gift that was given to you at Christmas. It's the gift of Jesus, the gift of life in Jesus, and you either have it or you don't, but you can't earn it. You can't buy it. You can't go out and do enough to make it happen. It's free. You just have to accept it. Jesus is real. Jesus is life. And then John continues, verse 3. He says, we proclaim to you what we have seen and what we have heard so that you may also have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus came that very first Christmas to be in fellowship with us, to be in relationship with us. You see, John's saying God isn't just a concept to be believed or a force to worship, that God came to earth to be a human, to be close to us, to be someone that we could relate to, to someone that we could experience intimacy with. Christmas declares, this is the third thing that John says, that Jesus is love. One of the things that I often look forward to at Christmas, it's kind of become a little tradition in our house, is that we often go to a movie on Christmas Day. And uh, the movie I'm most excited about coming out is uh, Spider-Man, the new Spider-Man movie. Uh, oh, man, I hope they finally tell the story of how Peter Parker became Spider-Man. I just, like, I want to know that so bad. 
I'm just kidding. They tell that in almost every story. Uh, um, I'm a big Marvel movie buff and a big comic book buff, actually. But one of the things I'll miss in the Spider-Man movie is uh, Stan Lee. If you don't know Stan Lee, he's the creator of Marvel Comics, co-creator of characters like Spider-Man, like Captain America, like the Incredible Hulk. And uh, he, besides being a great writer and uh, artist, he became an actor later in his life. In fact, he wrote himself into uh, cameos in over 40 movies, including almost all of the Marvel movies from the very first X-Men movie uh, all the way up to Avengers uh, Endgame. But Stan Lee was not the first writer to write himself into his own movie. If you're a fan, you may know that Alfred Hitchcock made it his business to make a cameo in almost every movie that he wrote. In fact, Hitchcock, the actor, is in most of his own movies, And near the end of his career, he talked about that. He said this. He said, I wormed my way into my own pictures as a spy. A director should see how the other half lives. One movie critic said this about his appearances. He said, they create a special bond between filmmaker and viewer. Through his cameos, Hitchcock becomes an ambassador between you and the world that they have created. Are you starting to see a parallel here. I love what, uh, listen to what else is true about Hitchcock, film, uh, about Hitchcock. Film scholar Michael Walker notes that most of Hitchcock's appearances happen during scene transitions. He writes this. He says, the Hitchcock cameo is an omen warning us that something significant will happen soon. The cameo marks a narrative threshold which once crossed by the character cannot be undone. You know, in the same way, Christmas means the one who created all things, the one who loves you, who loves us, wrote himself into our story. He became like us so that he could better understand us. He became one of us because he wants a relationship with you. He became the remedy for sin for us because he wants us to know love, and so he loves us. And he has called us to love one another. In fact, John writes this later in 1 John chapter 4. He writes, we love because he first loved us. You know, that's, that's why we're giving money away through Greater. I don't know if you know that. Uh, that's why we're taking up a Christmas offering. We'll talk about that in a couple of minutes. That's why we're making repairs and updates to our Carmel campus if you haven't been over there. That's why we're looking for a new home for our Noblesville campus. These, these are ways that we love our neighbors. They're ways that we reach out to others. We make disciples, we reach our cities, and we change the world because Jesus loved us, and so we should go and love others. We do it because Jesus is love, and he demonstrated his love for us by coming to earth and giving his life up on the cross. John says this about Jesus in Christmas. He says, Jesus is real, Jesus is life, Jesus is love. Why did John feel it was so important to write these words to the first church? Well, look at this, verse four, first John 1, 4. He says, we write this to make our joy complete. Or I love how the New Living Translation says this, says we are writing these things so that you may fully share our joy. Basically, the last thing that John wants us to see here that we're going to talk about this morning is this, that Jesus is joy. Jesus is joy. He wants us to know the joy of embracing the birth and life of Jesus, the getting to know Christ and trusting your life with him, trusting him with your salvation. It's greater than anything. And when we think about Christmas, this is what we need to point back to the unmistakable, irreplaceable joy that Jesus can bring. Now, when you think about your life and you think about Christmas, you think about the things that are coming up over the next couple weeks, is joy the first word that comes to your mind? (laughs) Or is it stress? Is it worry? Is it hurry? 
Is it, oh no, I can't believe I have to see them again. We just saw them at Thanksgiving. Don't get me wrong. John's not ignorant to our circumstances. He's not saying the life isn't hard and we won't face some discouraging times. But it doesn't, it shouldn't change the hope that we have. Right? No matter what happens in this world, the story doesn't change. God's not nervous. He's not up there in heaven on his throne right now thinking of a backup plan. He, he's, he's waiting for you to turn to him. He's waiting for you to turn to him to get out of the mess that you're in. That plan has always been Jesus. Our hope is in Jesus. If your hope is in anything else other than Jesus, it is misplaced. Jesus is the hope that can help us in the pain of a broken world, the pain of a broken relationship. He can help us in overcoming anxiety. Jesus is the hope that can help us in our financial worries. He's the hope that can help us be the hope for others that we see this Christmas season. He is the hope that can lead us through the uncertainties of this world. And as we head into the Christmas season, I just want to remind you that you have a choice of how to approach it. You can choose to focus on the circumstances of life, you know, the things that you can't change, the things that you can't do much about. And I do that sometimes. Or you can choose to focus on your attitude and choose joy. We have a saying in my house, and I know it's cheesy. I know it's corny. But if you know me, you know I love cheese and I love corn. Um, But it's this. We say, today my choice is to rejoice. You know, when you wake up each morning, instead of letting all the weariness of the world rush at you, focus on the reason that you have for joy. We're going to close today with one of my favorite Christmas songs and what I think is one of the best songs ever written. It's O Holy Night. And one of the verses of the song reminds us of the whole reason for the Christmas season. Look at the words up here. It says this, Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he, till Jesus, appeared and the soul felt its worth. A thrill of hope, look at this, the weary world rejoices for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. Hey, when you hear that song this winter, you know, whether it's, I don't know, Mariah Carey or Michael Buble, Josh Groban, Lauren Daigle, or our band. Think about these words. A thrill of hope. The weary world rejoices. Or I love how the Bible says that in Lamentations 3. It says this, because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Be encouraged, friends. Choose joy because Jesus is alive and a weary world rejoices. Let's pray together. Father God, I am so thankful that you weren't content to let us wallow in our sin and our shame and our sorrow, but you sent your one and only son that we can celebrate at Christmas his birth through a virgin, his sinless life, his atoning death on the cross and his joyous resurrection. God, we celebrate that with joy in our hearts today. We love you and we're thankful in Jesus' name. Amen.